2: What's up guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdel Jabbar. What's up, my brother? Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year, man. Chilling as per usual. How about yourself?
2: I'm doing pretty well. Um that happy new year might be outdated by the time this is released because I don't think this is gonna be released right away. So Nope, probably not. <laughs> it might be a couple of weeks after. Well it's still it's still but, uh, ha- it, It'll
0: probably be the first or the second, you know, that you hear this year. So, you know. Same shit. <laughs>
2: same same shit. So it is January third right now, uh, ten ten p.m. So it's late. We are getting tired, and it's always fun when you're talking about sensitive. It's always great to talk about sensitive topics while you're tired, mm-hmm. while you can mess up. It's the best time <laughs> to do it. Yep. While well, you're not a hundred percent, but I mean those these are the cards that we've been dealt. We record it late at night. But um, how was uh, the holiday season for you? It was was
0: pretty good, man. Uh, I got um, a 360-degree camera, which is super cool. And uh, we just sat on our balcony and watched the fireworks because in Puerto Rico, Puerto Ricans happen to like fireworks more than anyone I've ever met, any group of people I've ever met before. They use fireworks on a random Tuesday just because. So New Year's is is a big event, and it literally sounds like a war zone. I'll send you the video, um, but there's a really cool three hundred sixty degree video that you can see from my balcony. You've been on my balcony, so you, you know panoramic views of you know the city and the island and the water, and you just see explosions happening everywhere. It was super cool. How
2: about you? Uh, it was pretty cool. It was uh, it's pretty cool. So my son had RsV so that wasn't great. What is that? On Christmas. It's uh, a respiratory virus f- that most people get, but it's bad when it when babies get it. Okay. So he was sick, but he was fine. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't too sick. You know, it wasn't anything that was too concerning, but um, that was fun. But it was also fun just um, going through Christmas the first time with a kid, even though he's too young to understand what's going on. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I mean he obviously has no idea. Like he understands the wrapping paper. He likes to pull it and he could see he sees the different colors and he wants to put mm-hmm. it in his mouth, but he has no <laughs> concept of of gifts or anything right. like that. But right. um, I mean it's fun to finally shop for a you know a baby. I got I your mean, Christmas card for by other the way. <laughs> oh, thank you. What would you think of it?
0: It was hilarious. I loved it. <laughs> yeah.
2: Little little Jay with a with a uh, bow tie.
0: Yeah, it was cool.
2: (laughs) So something that you'll appreciate. The other day, I just, so I saw Lord of the Rings on Mm -hmm. HBO. So the extended versions. And I haven't seen Lord of the Rings in a long time. Maybe five, six years I haven't watched it. And Mm -hmm. whenever you see, whenever there's a movie that you really loved growing up, and Lord of the Rings was my favorite film ever when I was a kid. I used to watch it nonstop. Mm -hmm. It's always interesting to watch it and see like, does a movie hold up now? Does it hold up for modern audiences? And I watched The answer is always no. (laughs) And well, in this case, I'm happy to say that Lord of the Rings absolutely does hold up to Mm. modern special effects and and into modern, you know, huge blockbuster extravaganza type films. Uh, plus the story is just better because it's, it's Tolkien, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, man, that was fucking awesome. Even though James couldn't understand it. Um,
0: I'm sure he loved it. Know,
2: <laughs> he, he, he absolutely loved it until the end where he was like, he's like, Hey, um, why didn't the Eagles just fly Frodo and Sam to Mount Mordor to begin with?
0: Right. And I <laughs> said, you know what, James? So much easier.
2: Shut up. Just shut up. <laughs> All right. Just shut up. Because Sauron would have saw them. That's what would have happened.
0: <laughs> You'll find out when you're older.
2: <laughs> and then he was like, why did Aragorn let that, that, uh, that snake who was possessing the king of Rohan, why did he let him escape? Didn't, don't you know that led to, to uh, Solomon knowing where the weakness of Helm's Deep was leading to the death of hundreds of elves and, and Rohan soldiers? Come on. Huge fuck up right there.
0: I know. I like, know.
2: Why didn't they just why didn't they just capture him? Why didn't they just put him in prison if they didn't want to murder him? And I said I said, shut up. Stop you're <laughs> spoiling it for me. <laughs> the, the the plot holes are uh are very minor compared to other films like Star Wars.
0: Well, depends on which Star Wars we're talking about, but yeah. <laughs>
2: We had a whole discussion. I guess they they solved this problem, you know, with the exhaust port in the first—not the first one, episode four, where it's like, why do you have an exhaust port that—
0: That will blow up the entire
2: Death Star. Well, (laughs) why does it suck things in instead of push things out, like push energy out? I,
0: I don't know that it sucked it in. I think that was just like weird, like the proton torpedo physics, like strange proton torpedo physics.
2: Yeah, but then they made a stupid movie to to cover that plot hole, so yeah. whatever. I guess it is what it is. Well, they're they're uh, trying right, to retcon
0: us- They're trying to redcon a lot of like the the newest movies with a lot of these TV shows, but we don't need to go down that rabbit hole just yet. Let's just jump into the <laughs> actual uh topic of the day.
2: Okay, so we are talking about the assassination of the Israeli prime minister Yitzhak Rabin in 1995. Yep. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this is obviously the current situation, uh, the current war on Gaza. And really, I think it explains a lot about how we're here and how the peace process failed and fundamentally how Israeli society has really shifted over the past Really, since the sixty-seven war, mm-hmm. so I thought this was a pretty interesting topic to cover and 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 to explore in more detail. And um, I guess the, you know to start this off, so Yitzhak Rabin, prime minister of Israel, um, November fourth, nineteen ninety-five, he's assassinated, mm-hmm. and he's assassinated by a Benjamin Netanyahu fan, essentially, an ultra-right Orthodox Jew named. Yigal Amir, and he was murdered in response to the signing of the Oslo Accords in September of 1993. And with Rabin's death, effectively, it erased any type of promise made about returning occupied territories to the Palestinians.
0: Yep. All right. Just before we get too deep, because it's about to get real deep, just so we're all on the same page, maybe we should start with who was Yitzhak Rabin?
2: Sure. So Yitzhak Rabin, he served two terms of prime minister. Um, he was head of the Labor Party. His first term was in 1974 to 1977. Then his second term was from 92 to 95. Um, when he returned in 92, Likud had been in power for the past 13 of the 15 years. So Menachem Begin, he was prime minister from, 97, not 97, from 1977 to 1983, and then he resigned um, due to you know, controversies in the war in Lebanon. Um, Yitzhak Shamir took leadership of the party. And then um, Shimon Peres was prime minister between 84 and 86. And he was the only... This was the only period when Likud was not in power. However, Shamir came back in power in 86. So when Rabin won the election in 92 people thought there could be a shift in in you know israel's ever-growing strain of religious nationalism because remember the early zionists were they weren't religious nationalists they were secular ethnic nationalists and we'll get into that transition later in this episode
0: right i think it's important to remember that you know, a lot of these early Zionists were were these like hard-nosed military guys. And and Rabin was one of them. I mean, he was the head of the IDF during the sixty-seven war. And he was the defense minister from eighty-four to nineteen ninety. So during that first intifada, uh, and this is after Ariel Sharon was forced to resign due to the massacring uh Palestinian refugee camp in Beirut by a Christian militia militia, which was allied with the IDF there. Um Side note. Anyway, before 1948, um, Rabin was was the commander of what was called the Haganah. Uh, and the Haganah, along with the Irgun and the Stern Gang, or Lehi, uh, these were the, the main Jewish paramilitary organizations during the British Mandate period in Palestine. And Haganah was the armed wing of this... Uh, organization called Jewish Agency for Palestine, which was the operational branch of the World Zionist Organization founded by Theodore Herzl. Um, The Jewish Agency for Palestine was pretty much the the primary organization that oversaw and promoted a lot of the Jewish immigration to Palestine. For example, Ben-Gurion was the president until uh, the establishment of the Israeli state in 1948. And... Haganah here means defense force, so you can think of them as like the precursors to the IDF. And the Haganah is accused of perpetrating many of the ethnic cleansing campaigns in 1948 and in 1947. So in these cases, Yitzhak Rabin personally ordered the expulsion of Lida, uh, which was when 50,000 or over 50,000 Arabs were marched out of that city into refugee camps and many of them died along the way. You can think of that as a ethnic cleansing of sorts, um, depending on your definition there. <laughs> now, I don't mean to get too far into the history of the 47 or 48 war. there's a lot that goes on there. Uh, The point I'm trying to make is that Rabin wasn't a peacenik, right? He wasn't like this peace-loving guy. Uh, He did some things, and he was part of some military organizations. Um, But Rabin, he represented the views of a lot of the early Zionists who were happy to have this kind of 80-20 majority in Israel, 80 being Israeli, 20 being non-Israeli or Arabs. And they believe that the bulk of the West Bank shouldn't be settled by Israel, uh, because they understood that inevitably, uh, by taking over the West Bank, that would bring more Arabs under their rule, which would dilute the Jewish state, right? There'd be fewer Jewish majority, a smaller Jewish majority, if at all. Uh, And this early secular nationalist wanted the Jews to be this dominant racial majority in the Jewish state. And this came at odds with what Religious Orthodox expansionists had in mind, which was that the Jews should take over all of Judea and Samaria. So kind of creates a little bit of tension between the two. Nevertheless, neither of them were like peace loving in that respect.
2: Yeah, and, and I guess a good way to put it is that um you know he they were the early Zionists were if nothing else they were definitely pragmatist. Mm-hmm. They understood that if they were going to, you know, take on more land in the you know, especially in the West Bank that ultimately that would like you said dilute the the purity of a of a Jewish state right. because what are they going to do with all these Arabs? And ultimately, that would just, you know, lead to all sorts of other problems. Now, the origins of this conflict is really the 67 war. Um, I mean, the origins really go back a lot further than that, really, to the, to the early Zionist movement. But the, you know, the direct origins to the conflict are the 67 war. Um, the 67 war ruins a secular nationalist goal of having their 80-20 majority in Israel. And after the war, they started occupying the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip, and the Golan Heights. So around a million or so Palestinians were now under their control. So the primary question is, what do they do with all these people who they now occupy? Because if they gave non-Jew citizenship, or all, there's some Jews, there's some Arab Israeli citizens... But if they gave all these other Arabs citizenship or non-Jews citizenship, Muslims and, you know, mostly Muslims and Christians, Israel would cease to exist as a Jewish state because they would no longer be the majority or a very slim majority, which would eventually be overtaken. Mm -hmm. Um, So the solution to this is that, well, the obvious solution is that, okay, so why don't we give them their own state so why don't the palestinians get their own state which is you know the two-state solution
0: right but the problem here though was that the israelis started building settlements in the occupied territories that they were proposing that the palestinians have as their own state which ruins this like you know palestinian states territorial integrity right and and they were israelis um especially members of, of religious organizations where which which saw these territories and specifically the West bank as just like this integral part of greater Israel. And, you know, there were other Israelis uh, on the other hand, who saw the occupation of the territories as a way to gain peace through like a land for peace proposal. So basically like, Hey, if we take this over now, we can use it as a bargaining chip for later to get peace. Um, so it was like a weird, uh, uh, kind of um, intersection between people who wanted to keep it and people who wanted it just as a bargaining chip uh, that was promoting more land grabs in what was the obvious solution to not diluting the Jewish state. Nevertheless, though, uh, occupying millions of people with no political solution or hope uh, becomes very unsustainable. And this situation leads to the first intifada in 1987. Intifada here word meaning uprising or to shake off and there was an incident where four Palestinians were uh, killed by an Israeli military truck in Gaza which kicked this off and we don't really know if it was on purpose or if it was an accident or not that part is kind of unclear but nevertheless that that was the stated reason for the first intifada in 1987
2: yeah so the 1980s is a pretty crazy time in Israel. There's obviously the war in Lebanon. There's mm-hmm. the Antifada. Um, and there is, you know, a lot of instability. The it, it was really kind of the Antifada that compels the Bush administration to prioritize a peace process, um, Bush Sr. And Secretary James Baker took the lead on this after the gulf war george bush senior he thought he had this grand opportunity to push a peace on the israelis so he was really trying to exploit the goodwill and the political capital from winning the war to create a peace conference which would also be co-sponsored by you know what was left of the soviet union so the madrid conference was created and it was the first ever direct talks between israel the Palestinians, Syrian, uh, Syria, and then the Gulf countries, and um, really the Madrid Conference was there was there was three tracks of, of direct negotiations: arranged between Israel and Syria, Israel and Lebanon, um, and then Israel and Jordanian Palestinian joint delegations. There was not a there was no representation of the PLO at the Madrid Conference. And the reason why is because Arafat had supported Saddam Hussein during Iraq War I. So, um, Arafat, he joins the Madrid Conference as part of the Jordanian delegation. Now, the Madrid Conference really doesn't go anywhere. And I'm not going to get too far into to why it doesn't. Negotiations break, break down. And something I find really interesting is how the Bush administration was completely hammered by by um, you know Jewish lobby groups, specifically APAC. George Bush Senior, for all of his faults, um, is the last president to really stand up to the Israelis. And one of the reasons that Rabin beat Shamir in the election of ninety two is because um, Shamir he couldn't secure loan guarantees that we would be used for Jewish immigration from the Soviet Union to to new settlements. Um, Bush said that he would freeze them. Um, You know, he basically said if the money is going to be used to create new settlements, I'm blocking it. Mm. So there's this, there's this famous story about James Baker and Bush where they were asked about how, um, you know, Jewish groups were acting hostile towards them. And, James Baker famously said, "Fuck them. They didn't vote for us anyway." And <laughs> let me just sw- and I'm, let me just say that I'm quoting that so as no one could take me out of context. Yeah, <laughs> but um, you know he was he was referring to the fact that most American Jews largely vote Democrat, right? Now, the Bush administration they saw Rabin as a likely partner for peace, but um, you know Bush ends up losing the '92 election to to Clinton. Um, and you know, a lot of people think, and and I think, you know, there, it is a big part of it, um, that Bush senior lost his election largely due to the Israel lobby. Um, but that's, that's a topic for another day. Now, what is important to note, even though Bush loses the election, there really is still enough political will and still enough really reputations on the line that the peace the peace process does continue with the clinton administration so when rabin became prime minister in 92 he's immediately saddled with the responsibility of this peace process
0: right and and when he gets elected you know rabin orders a freeze on all of the settlement construction um, rabin being the defense minister during that intifada he understood that that the burden that there was like a an inherent burden of occupying territory like we said earlier, he also understood that expanding the borders of Israel could potentially bring non-Jews into the state, which would dilute that ethnic purity that they were going for. So it was just generally against you know those expansions. And as those negotiations began following the June election, it became clear that the Palestinians that were attached to the Jordanian delegation in Washington, they were receiving instructions from the PLO directly. So Rabin was just like, hey, let's just talk directly with one another. That is, you know, Israel and the PLO talk directly instead of through, you know, their their Jordanian delegation in Washington. So this formalized what began in December of 92 as the Oslo process, which I'm sure many people have heard of. Eight months later, uh, the Oslo process basically ended in the agreement known as the Oslo Accords between Israel and the PLO and the formal signing ceremony that was held in Washington a month later on September 13th uh, by President Clinton, uh, Rabin, and Arafat together at the White House. Uh, Oslo established a a framework uh, to transfer governance of the West Bank and Gaza Strip from the state of Israel to a Palestinian interim self-government authority. Man, that's a mouthful. Uh, It's just now known as the Palestinian Authority. Um, And that authority was... Supposed to have jurisdiction over education, culture, health, social welfare, direct taxation, and tourism, but not foreign or defense issues, and Israeli settlements nor their Jewish inhabitants. Right. So that that was a a notable uh, uh thing that they didn't have control over. And these, yeah,
2: I mean, they basically they were a state with autonomy. They weren't like a sovereign nation, but they were like how Greenland is to Denmark or right. what Green, greenland's part of denmark right or if i get that correct or is it Dan- uh norway no, regardless denmark yeah denmark it's like greenland is to denmark um, um you know like but imagine greenland inside denmark but it, <laughs> they wouldn't yeah. control their own foreign policy most right. importantly um right. you know which is which is um you know a territory within or hold an autonomous a
0: zone military or anything like that an yeah. autonomous
2: stone with with um you know their own police force and their own rights for cultural culture preservation and things like that right so
0: um these negotiations they actually took place in secret in
2: obviously oslo
0: in norway um and it came up with a few um a few outputs so one of them was the declaration of principles or the dop which established a timetable for the gradual transfer of authority from Israel to Palestine uh, to the Palestinian interim government. That is uh, in both the West bank and Gaza Strip. Uh, it also provided uh, for the creation of a Palestinian intern self-government authority. That's that the Palestinian authority basically um, to administer the West, the West bank and the Gaza Strip during that interim period. It also stipulated a, a, and and a phrased withdrawal excuse me phased withdrawal phrased (laughs) it stipulated a phased withdrawal uh, of israeli military forces from parts of uh the west bank and gaza strip um the withdrawal was obviously intended to create you know conditions for the establishment of that palestinian authority kind of hard to do that when you have an occupying force there you know um and the oslo accords also led to the creation of of um the actual Palestinian Authority that we know now, that was chaired by Yasser Arafat, um, and the PA granted basically limited self-governance power over those specified areas that we were talking about. And then finally, uh, the accords outlined these plans for democratic elections to be held in in the occupied territories to establish basically the the formal leadership of the Palestinian Authority, and that's that's what the that's what the negotiations came to.
2: Yeah, and just to pull this back the concept behind oslo had its origins in the 1978 framework for peace in the middle east which was one of the primary documents of the camp david accords which which was um, you know signed in david in camp david by egyptian president ahwar sadat and um, menachem begin and you know brokered by by jimmy carter uh, since then this idea has been the the basis of Of really israeli and u.s policies and and you know the the cornerstone or i shouldn't say current but it's been kind of the basis of the charade of u.s of u.s and israeli policy um or you know the basis of any type of peace initiative Mm -hmm. that would that would take place now the reality of it is that you know it didn't it didn't um it didn't acknowledge the reality that the occupation needed to end in order for this to work. Um, but, you know, the, the framework clearly stipulated full autonomy for the people and negotiations, negotiations on the final status of the West Bank and, and the Gaza Strip were based on UN resolution 242. However, it's main weakness was in its failure to recognize the the Palestinians, as you know, that that the political representation of of Palestinians, basically um,
0: the the rec- recognizing that Palestinians exist and that they have a political yeah and and popular representatives.
2: Yeah, yeah as people as as holders of any type of political power. Right. That's an easier way to say it. Exactly. But pulling this back to the Oslo Accords. To the hard right in Israel, the Oslo Accords are a moral shock. So, the, the Oslo Accords contradicted the expectation that post-1967 territorial expansion was the beginning of the linear and irreversible progress towards the messianic advent and the redemption You see, after the 67 war, there was a fusion of religion and Zionism. So remember, Zionism in its earliest conception, the early Zionists, a lot of them were atheists. You know, the reason why there was such a push to have the Jewish state in Palestine in the first place is just because it's kind of like, a it's just like why any nation state has this kind of connection to this mythological past because it sells better you know it's like an all it's like a cool story it's like we're going back to our homeland this is where our blood's from right but it wasn't really you know these guys weren't religious like, you know religious them, fanatics at all a yeah. lot of the religious jews in the world were against were not zionist at the time mm-hmm. you know they were they were they were against it um now there's a term called ideotheology, and this is a term by, by Dr. Clive Jones, which I, which I sourced a lot for this. So the conviction that Zionism was a necessary precursor to what religious nationalists believe, believed was the arrival of the messianic era found a particular resonance after 1967. The capture of the West Bank and East Jerusalem, the biblical heart of Eretz Israel, against apparently overwhelming odds, soon acquired messianic overtones. So some Orthodox Ju- Jews believe that the Messiah would reunite the Jews with the biblical land of Israel, whose boundaries are stipulated into the Torah. So the capture of the West Bank and East Jerusalem... The, which is the biblical heart of Uret's Israel, had these messianic overtones. So I'll quote um, Clive Jones again. The real impact of the religious right was to redefine the normative character of Zionism. While never a single cohesive ideology, Zionism was nonetheless an amalgam an alm- of ideas drawn from Jewish philosophy, history, and religion. On the one hand, infused with the universal values of freedom, democracy, and justice for its Jewish citizens, values identified with Western civilization. While the period of 1948 and 67 never saw the complete synthesis of those, these ideas, close association with universal values marked the development of an Israel rather than a Jewish identity. The June 1967 marked a watershed in this process with the affirmation of particular Jewish rather than universal values in determining the character of the state of Israel. These particularist values increasingly influenced the political agenda in Israel after 1967, a process accelerated by the election of the first Likud-led coalition government under Menachem Begin in 1977. This also led to led the religious right to reject the theory of normalization outlined by Herschel and other classical Zionist thinkers. In this respect, the October of the October war of 1973 was of particular significance. In June, in the June six day war, was interpreted as signifying divine intervention in hastening the process of redemption. The Yom Kippur War signified the continued rejection by Gentiles of Jews as a people, and an attempt to undermine the Messianic Age into which Jews as a people had now passed. Maintaining the integrity of the Eretz Israel remained the supreme goal of religious nationalists and formed the core component of their ideo-theology. Clear reference was made to the covenant made between God and Abraham regarding the land as an everlasting possession, a promise that is repeated by God, according to the book of Genesis, to Abraham's son Isaac and to his son Jacob. As long as successive Israeli governments albeit on security grounds continue to value Jewish control over the territories captured in 1967, a clear symbiosis of objective existed with religious nationalism. As such, submitting To the secular authority of the Jewish state, possessed little real difficulty. Nonetheless, by regarding the land as central to the redemptive process of the Jewish people, it followed that any attempt to trade land for peace usurped the will of God and therefore would be opposed. This position brought to the fore the centrality of Halakha, the doctrine, rules, and laws of Judaism that, through the centuries, had been codified into judicial
1: law. So turn to the nerds to answer your real world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can spend less time staying in the know about all
0: things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic Con coverage to the Huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update, wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: So what are your what are your thoughts on that? I mean. It's interesting to see how
0: how Zionism gets I don't, uh, for lack of a better word, co-opted by the religious right, or at least the, the folks that were really trying to, uh, accelerate, you know, the messianic age. It kind of feels a lot like, you know, our episode on the Christian Zionism, Christian Zionists and the, uh, you know, the religious rights there, uh, the folks that wanted to speed up the, you know, <laughs> Armageddon by getting the Jews back to their homeland, right? Um... There's an interesting parallels there and it's, it's, it's fascinating how, how, how that intersection between secular Zionists and these hardcore, like religious right folks and how.
2: Well, just think of, think about it this way. Why would, and I'm, it's, this is going to sound pretty crude, but like, why would a Jew from America, an American Jew or you know, maybe a British Jew or wherever who has a comfortable life, want to get up, move into the desert, and go to a place that's dangerous. Frankly, you know, there's been there's been a series of wars. Mm-hmm. There has, you know, the everyone in the region hates you. What would make you want to get up and go there Especially if you weren't, you know, if you were shielded or, you know, weren't, escaped the Holocaust and, you know, not in a extremely intolerable situation like in Germany and and Central Europe in Central and Eastern Europe prior to World War II. Like, why would you want to go there when you can live a better and safer life in America, in New York, in New York?
0: Right in Brooklyn,
2: you have to be a pretty fanatical to want to get up and move there, and you'd have to be you have to be a pretty big fanatic to want to get up and move and settle. You know the West Bank, and you know kick someone out of their home. Mm. So I think it was a requirement for for Israel to to. um kind of mix their their um secular nationalism with their with 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 a religious flavor to attract more Jews across the world. That's my that's my theory on, on it and, and why it happened and and you know, why there was this uh merger between secular Zionism and religious Zionism.
0: I guess the question really is like whether it was manufactured or if that's just the natural conclusion?
2: I think I don't really know enough to say it was manufactured, but it's definitely a interesting topic to explore, you know, is, is how, how this, you know, how exactly this happens. Like, you know, if you go back to Christian Zionism, like how, mm-hmm. how is the Christian Zionist movement created? Well, in Protestantism, there had always been these types of overtones of, of um, an interest in the the um, of the Jews in the Bible, you know. Mm-hmm. So Christian Zionism was kind of a outgrowth of that. But then there was this merger of the religious in British society and the. Um, Jewish Zionist political movement in in Austria and and you know the rest of Europe. There was this this merger of it, and you know at that time the Christian block of that was the the ones that were more motivated. They by were the religious the zealots, yeah, okay. messianic type of religious flavor. The the Jews were were motivated more so by the persecution that they were facing across Europe. So, um, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons. It's an interesting topic to to fully explore. I don't really have a good answer to whether it was manufactured or not.
0: I don't think we're qualified to answer that question either. <laughs> so,
2: but um, I'm sure I'm sure there's a lot of stuff on the internet you could find. Um, but all right, so going back, so after the '73 war. Jewish settlements were, were rapidly expanding. And there was this movement called Gush, um, I believe it's pronounced, Im- Imunim, Gush immunim. Forgive me if I'm pronouncing this incorrectly, but it means block of faithful. And this group, would they would lobby for the expansion of settlements and the rebuilding of the third temple on the Temple Mount. When Menachem Begin, became Likud leader and prime minister in 1977. He was in a coalition with the religious right. And he started speaking of the occupied territories as part of Eretz Israel, so the land of Israel, to to be settled by a new generation of Israelis, making the land non-negotiable. So needless to say, the settler movement inevitably came into violent confrontations with the palestinians which again you know which which really culminates in into the um the the uprising or rebellion or or antifada of 1987. and this uprising brought into prominence this new generation of activists who are connected with with mosques and, and religious institutions, and among them was Hamas, which is a Muslim Brotherhood group. And we did a whole episode on the origins of Hamas, and I don't want to get too, in, too into that now. But you know, the Israelis they fostered they they fostered the 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 growth of Hamas. They didn't invent Hamas, right? But no, they just it was, promoted it. Was, um, <laughs> they they promoted it as a organization to really, at first it was really to, um, to split up the PLO or to be a right. worth against the PLO because the PLO was sponsored by the Soviet Union. And, you know, they had some real power when you think about that. They didn't really care as much about the religious fanatics. They would actually even use the religious fanatics to beat up on, on, um, on, you know, Communist or or socialist types who, who would be advocating for for freedom and or advocating for you know civil rights and and things like that. So they fostered then, but but um this this starts to turn in the in the eighties where Hamas kind of turns into turns against Israel. Um, so I'll quote this, this is an interesting quote. So uh, this is a quote from Professor uh, Salim Mansur who who just published an article recently it was called Rabin's murder is the prehistory of Gaza Israel 10-7 so I'm going to read directly from him the Intifada also becomes the conduit for supporters of Hamas to organize the politics of resistance in terms of the brotherhood ideology of jihad Gush Aminyam Uses of the, of the terminology "Eretz Israel," "land of Israel," meaning the land over which Jews claim historic historical rights, and for them to redeem and settle was countered in the Hamas charter that all Palestinian Palestine is Islamic waqf. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing that right as well. I think it's waqf, a religious endowment, consecrated for future Muslim generations until Judgment Day, and hence cannot be despoiled squandered given or taken away from muslims by anyone
0: let me pause you right there before i continue just to make that absolutely clear what he's saying is that both groups are claiming the same land as a you know religious or historical right to their people at this point so both both the palestinians and and the jews
2: and and just and just whenever somebody tells you that this is a a century long conflict to, that has to do with religion, just slap them in the face. <laughs> Say, no. The religious element doesn't happen until the sixties and seventies. Right. And eighties, really. This is not fundamentally a-, a this is more of a racial war mm-hmm. <laughs> but that took on it's still this is more of a racial war than a religious war. Mm-hmm. Um that but took on. This is when they started use, flavor.
0: This is when they just started using that like religiously, um, like religiously charged language. Right, the Israelis are using the term Eretz Israel or Land of Israel, which is just has this you know, religious overtone to it or historic overtone, and 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 the Palestinians are calling Palestine the Islamic Waqf which is the religious endowment again. So they're just using this like charged language at this point to refer to this land and stake a claim to it from a, a religious or historical perspective.
2: Yeah. And remember, you know, the Muslim brotherhood is, um, and their whole goal is to, you know, create Islamic political power in in the different countries that they operate in. Mm-hmm. um, now, as Hamas... You're continuing on, the quote here. I'm continuing the quote. So, as Hamas gained popularity, it posed a threat to secular nationalist appeal of the PLO, a threat that, that its enemies among Arab states in the region, including Israel, would exploit to create divisions among Palestinians. Israeli intelligence agencies, Mossad and Shinbet, would have been negligent in failing to penetrate Hamas with informers and... good and and goad Hamas activists escalate the rhetoric of religious extremists and terrorist violence to outflank the PLO from the right. Rabin had failed during his time as defense minister to impede the settler movement in the territories that came to haunt him as a prime minister. After signing the Oslo Accords, Rabin was was a marked man, his death foretold. The Intifada had taken the lid off domestic terrorism. Gush Eminem and the ultra-religious right in Israel had found... In Hamas, their partner in the zero sum dance of mutual hate and violence. Within six months of the signing of the Oslo Accords, the the ring of fire was ablaze. <laughs> so, even to this day, you know, there's all these quotes about how there's all these direct quotes from Benjamin Netanyahu saying how we need the, we need Hamas and um you know, Hamas delegitimizes the Palestinian cause. Um, And, you know, there's a direct quote that's from Netanyahu who says, don't worry if things get out of hand because we control the the height of the flame type thing. So Mm -hmm. they, the Likudniks, they needed Hamas to justify not um, conceding any type of settlement to to the palestinians because what better excuse is there than that no these guys are crazy we right can't, we can't work with them they're not partners for peace
0: right they don't want to give up any of the land at all right they're useful in in making a good argument for
2: keeping the land so so um now you got to note so with the rise of this new level of religious nationalism there was of course increased levels of confrontations and there was these confrontations between Hamas and then the extreme settler right groups right-wing groups and both sides were attempting to thwart the agreement with violent acts so it wasn't wasn't really one-sided but the starting of this had to do with um, with the uh, Ibrahimi mosque which was called it's called the Cave of the patriarchs. Uh, There was this massacre in this mosque by a settler named Baruch Goldstein in 1994. And uh, Salim, he includes this which a descriptive outline of the event. So at 5.20 a.m. on February 25th, 1994, some, some 700 Palestinian Arab men, women and children, having awoken and risen in the dark and eating a quick breakfast, swarmed into the mosque in Hebron, for down prayers that marked the start of the fast observed from sunrise to sunset on each of the 30 days of Ramadan. Prayers had just started. Worshippers were kneeling forward on a plastic mats, touching foreheads reverently to the floor. While they were praying, Baruch Goldstein, a Jewish settler from the nearby community of Kiryat Arba, arrived on the scene. He was a physician and well-known activist. A year earlier, he had Prophesized in a synagogue that there will come a day when a Jew will get up and kill many Arabs for killing Meir Kahani, the Jewish zealot slain in New York City in 1990. Right-wing Jews said many extreme things, and Goldstein's words seemed to to be wild rhetoric, but nothing more. As the worshippers continued their prayers, Goldstein silently approached the mosque. He wore a reserve captain's olive green army uniform. And a milk on his head, and he carried a military-issue Galil assault rifle. Speaking in Arabic, he asked the Palestinian guard at the door to let him enter, but the guard tried to keep him from going in, arguing that Israelis were forbidden to step inside the step inside during the Muslim prayers. Goldstein's angrily persisted, "I am the officer in charge here, and I must go in." Knocking the guard down with his rifle. But he rushed inside, positioning himself close to the backs of the worshippers in the rear view, in the rear row. Then, saying nothing, he opened fire. Seven people died immediately, all shot in the head. Others ran for cover, screaming, calling for help. Golstein kept up the barrage of bullets for another ten minutes. In the end, he killed thirty Palestinians. He had been hoping to kill the peace process as well by raising the temperature of the Arab-Israeli conflict to such heights that talking peace would have been impossible. He succeeded, but only temporarily. In their grief and fury, Palestinians were in no mood to talk about implementing the DOP. Now it was just Hamas terror that was threatening to blow up the Oslo Accords. It was the Israeli terror. It was. Let me re, let me repeat that. Now it was not just Hamas terror that was threatening to blow up the Oslo Accords. It was Israeli terror as well. So a few weeks later, on April 6, and um, yeah, April 6, 13 Hamas fighters they they um, responded with a suicide bomb attack in two Israeli towns in Hadira and Afula. And really this begins this tick-for-tat response between both radical sides. The Israeli government responded by making it illegal for Jews to enter major Arab communities in Hebron. The, um, but the Israeli government also took extreme measures against Palestinians as well, you know, expelling them from certain streets near Jewish ha- settlements in Hebron where many Palestinians had homes and businesses and, um, you know, allowing access exclusively to, to, um, you know, Jewish Israelis and, and, and foreign tourists, foreign, uh, excuse me, foreign tourists, tourist, why am I saying tourist, tourist, tourist. foreign tourist.
0: Well, that's, that's, that's just Man. apartheid one-on-one right there. So <laughs> this is where that starts.
2: Um, but you know, he had mentioned that he was a follower of Rabbi Mahir Kahani, and Ma- Kahani, Mahir Kahani was assassinated by the precursors of Al Qaeda in 1990. Right. Um, he was. Um,
0: we did a you know, whole episode you know, on, you know, on the assassination a, of. Kahani, yeah,
2: we by did. By it, way, we had actually a pretty it, uh, extensive episode on, on this guy's background a while, you know, almost a year ago. And he was, um, Kahani was was a, was an advocate for the, he was an advocate for essentially um, ethnically cleansing all the Palestinians in in the occupied territories. Mm -hmm. He, He has this book called, he has many books, but his most famous book, the most striking one is called They Must Go.
0: You can guess what that must be about.
2: <laughs> they must go, the book the book title. Yep. And um but even in Israel, he was considered a big problem and he was jailed dozens of times. He had this political party called Kok, and or Koch. Cock. And after <laughs> after two and after two um you know, failed attempts to be elected in the Knesset. He actually succeeded in 1984, and um, just I I took some of the notes from the last episode. We did just some of the policies he, he was he was advocating. So one was a law forbidding the abomination of assimilation and communion with Goyim. So in this case, Arabs. Another one, a mandatory prison sentence for any Arab who had sexual relations with a Jewish girl or woman. That's nuts. Three, a law restricting UN forces from engaging in any type of relations with the Jewish populations. And in addition, Kahani later declared that if elected, he would strip all Israel Arabs of their citizenship and work toward expelling any who refused to relinquish it. So he was—he um, was nuts. He was a a a real crazed guy, and you know he was involved in other groups. He's from the United States, and he 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 was the uh, founder of the Jewish Defense League, and the Jewish Defense League was like this response to not really the Arab Israeli conflict, but more so the um, migration of blacks into cities into into Jewish communities. And, um, it was like a organization that stood up for like, you know, Jews who were being mugged and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. but it kind of eventually turned into this, um, real crazy organization that was involved in terrorist attacks around like global terrorism and things like that. Like they were, they were, they were nuts. Um, they were, they were labeled a, a, um, a racist party. And they were Kahani was removed of his parliamentary post.
0: Yep, the Knesset, by the way, is the folks that labeled this his group a racist party. It wasn't. Yeah,
2: like, the Knesset itself labeled him a, a. They were too. They were too far right. Right for like, now, nah, you're you're for the, racist. <laughs> for, for the Knesset, so
0: <laughs> which is which at the time and still was pretty far right. <laughs> yeah, I mean this is all really good context but you know we we started this episode talking about how we're going to talk about the the assassination of of Rabin
2: and uh we haven't even gotten to it yet <laughs> an hour in <laughs> i know but we need to we need to you need to understand the context of what what he was going up against with the yep. peace pro- i agree just we, we, that we could just do an episode and be like okay he was assassinated on this day. This was the gunman. This is what happened. Right. But the more important part is why someone did it.
0: Right. Exactly.
2: But now so, we're gonna get onto the actual the actual yeah, let's, assassination.
0: Let's get yeah, let's get into it. Um so the opposition to uh Rabin's government in the Knesset was led by none other than our favorite prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. You know, uh and he was elected to replace Yitzhak Shamir as the Likud leader following the uh, June 1992 election. Netanyahu led the Likud to join a broader coalition that that spanned across uh, a a broad right-wing spectrum of Israeli politics against, basically, the Oslo Accords. And this coalition was spearheaded by the Yesha Council, the organization of West Bank and Gaza settlers, and and also anchored by hardliners in that group, Gush Emunim, the group that we can barely pronounce. The Oslo Accords was uh, a serious threat, though, um, to their objective of turning the occupied territories into a part of Eretz Israel. So, you know, the opposition's tactics to derail the Oslo Accords, according to Itamar Rabinovich, who was the Israeli ambassador to the U.S., said, and I quote, "Uh, "...it unfolded in several stages, legitimate political opposition, illegitimate political opposition," discrediting and delegitimizing the government and its leader dehumanization of the political rival symbolic conduct and ritual murder violent political conduct and actual assassination this is where you know itamar rabinovich that israeli ambassador to the us is is saying this is these were the tactics to derail the oslo accords which is just i mean they really must not have liked it to go as far as ritual murder. Um, but yeah, Rabin's government was branded by the opposition coalition as a, a word, Judenrat, which uh, is a, a smear against the Jews who uh, collaborated with the Nazis. Uh, even, even Ariel Sharon turned against Rabin, uh, who had a personal and professional relationship through the military. Sharon, yeah, and, R- uh, Ariel
2: Sharon. Yeah. Ariel Sharon, um, you know, he's a complicated history, but he wasn't as keen on making, you know, he was Lacoud as well, but he wasn't as, as, he he was a military guy as well, um, mm-hmm. like Rabin. So he had a, he had a professional relationship, you know, through, through their, through their military experience with Rabin. Um, uh, but he turned against the Rabin government as well.
0: Actually, Not to is, say that
2: Sharon's a good guy. I'm just saying Sharon, no, it's just, Sharon, yeah. is, Sharon is like, you know, one of the most, you know, Machiavellian um, Israeli politicians of all time. But, yeah, but um, he, he
0: ends up accusing Rabin's government as an insane, quote, an insane government that shrinks to Israel to Auschwitz borders, a reckless government, submissive, confused, treacherous, insane. This is how he, this is how Sharon... Describes Rabin's government. N- basically, at this point, nothing could have put the genie back in the bottle after October nineteenth, nineteen ninety-four. There, there was this uh, Hamas suicide bombing of a bus in Tel Aviv that killed twenty-two Israelis and wounded just as many. Uh, and, I remember and, yeah,
2: that as, a, as like a really young baby too. Yeah, yeah. Like I was, I was just that like was that's news. like one of my first like political memories. Is like, mm-hmm. um. Or maybe that was maybe it didn't maybe I was a little bit older um or it was a couple of years after I learned about it but it was like one of the first things I ever learned about Israel was that was that suicide bombing
0: hmm and at that bombing netanyahu ends up appearing at the site and addresses to the television cameras and and basically denounces rabin and says you know the the prime minister chose to prefer Arafat and the welfare of Gaza's residents at the expense of the inhabitants of Israel basically saying like ah uh, this guy let it happen, right? Because all because he wanted to, you know, kowtow to the to the Gazans, to the Palestinians. And
2: can, so th- can I can I say tell you something that's kind of fucked up? All right. So when I was a kid, I was pro-Israel because I thought that Arafat looked like this like little goblin man. <laughs>
0: I mean, he kind of does look like a little goblin. Am I wrong to say that? No. I, mean, I remember just like wrong. seeing him on the news <laughs>
2: and be like, oh, who's this goblin man? <laughs> <laughs> I
0: mean, looks alone, he kind of does look like a goblin. Um, I mean, in, in fairness, you know, sure, he kind of is a goblin, but um, that's <laughs> has nothing to do with what he looks like. You're, you're excused as a child, <laughs> I guess. Um. Okay, where was I? So, so these these extremist uh, uh, factions, not fascists, extremist factions uh, within Israel, they uh, they start intensifying uh, their, uh, let's call it agitation against Rabin. Uh, The rabbis of of these ultra orthodox Jews uh, heightened the tension by basically incorporating two controversial principles into the discourse. One of them was called The Law of the Pursuer, or Din Rodif, and the other one was called The Law of the Informer, Din Moser. I'm gonna explain what those are. Actually, uh, I'll, uh, I'll let uh, Itamar Rabinovich explain it for us. I'll quote him. He says, both laws were adopted from the long history of the Jews in the diaspora and under foreign rule, and both sanctioned, and both sanctioned the killing of a Jew who either pursued or prosecuted other Jews or informed on them to Gentile authorities. So basically, these are just two um, historically Jewish uh, uh, laws that let you kill a Jew if, you know, basically Jewish snitches, stitches, Ah, Jewish snitches get stitches is is what this was. Um, And uh, a week after that Tel Aviv bombing, on October 26th, King Hussein of Jordan and Rabin sign, end up signing the Jordanian-Israel Peace Treaty. Then in December 1994, uh, Rabin, accompanied by Shimon Peres and joined by Arafat, they all receive the Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo in Norway. And as the year 1995 opened the opposition to Rabin and the Oslo Accords, it, it grew increasingly Belligerent. Uh, these Orthodox rabbis in the diaspora were, were basically bringing up this this law of the pursuer and law of their informer, you know, um, and 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 were basically throwing it out there and saying like, hey, does does this count? <laughs> is 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 someone snitching or is someone you know uh, 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 persecuting or prosecuting against Jews here? Should this apply? And so. In September of '95, uh, negotiations to expand the the area in stages under the Palestinian Authority with the West Bank began um, beyond Jericho. That is, was known as Oslo Number Two, and that gets signed in Washington. And th- this incremental handover of the West Bank territory to, to the PA uh, was was separated into three s- distinct areas that we know now: areas A, B, and C. And uh, Oslo Two also marked basically the the speed or the momentum um, for reaching the final status agreement. On October 5th, the Knesset was scheduled to vote on Oslo number 2, and that opposition called for a mass rally on the same day in Zion Square in Jerusalem. Now, in that rally, Likud and other right-wing groups held other rallies where they showed Rabin in a Nazi uniform or as a target— uh, and they compared his party to Nazis and, and called him Hitler. And, you know, they, they were calling him a murderer and a traitor. Uh, and in this particular rally, however, and I think we've talked about this on the show once before, but Netanyahu led a mock funeral for Rabin with a coffin where people were shouting, Death to Rabin. And this in particular gives me like real Jan-6 vibes when those like right-wingers brought a gallow to the rally. Super dangerous imagery. Um, But yeah, Netanyahu was out there saying like, pretending like Rabin was already dead. I don't know. I don't know what that signals to you. <laughs> but for me, it doesn't sound very good. And so the security chief warned Netanyahu about there have been threats to Rabin's life and asked him to to like chill out and tone it down. Um, But Netanyahu didn't really do that. And although he, you know, he denied trying to stir up any violence, he definitely didn't tone it down. And so it's
2: just just crazy. Fucking nuts. Right. Like
0: literally, you know, what? I mean, like I said, it gives me real Jan 6 vibes, right? Like, they're, uh, some of them weren't out there. Me, to,
2: it gives me way worse than Jan 6 vibes. It gives me, like, well, that's just like the contemporary example.
0: Like, I don't know. They definitely weren't out there to, to, like, you know, change governments, <laughs> right? Like, they're out there for blood, you know? Uh,
2: so it gives me, like, um, I'm trying to think of a good comparison. Um,
3: It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. That's Yahoo Finance. Wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Um, what? Well, it's, like, it's like Herbert a, of the French Revolution, or someone like that. Like sure, somebody. It's
0: also like the the you know cross burnings, or like you know, putting a rope in a tree, you
2: know, during a rally. For it, it's but it's vacation, not. But it goes you know? it goes past a rabble rousing. I disagree with you strongly. Right. rally and it's, it's like it I want you to more die more of like a right. call for 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 death right.
0: I mean literally they were calling for death they were saying death to Rabin yeah that's literally what they were saying
2: so it's like the equivalent of like when a you know Brazilian soccer player like misses a penalty kick or something right like that.
1: and
0: then they, <laughs> they start like showing up at his house with like fucking guns and shit um, yeah,
2: did
0: it? but yeah, so, so in that particular, uh, um, rally, uh, Rabin's car ends up getting mobbed near the Knesset, but ultimately he survives that specific episode. Um, not too much longer, about a month later on November 4th, Rabin and, and, and Perez were, were, uh, at a peace rally in Malkai Yisrael square near the city hall in Tel Aviv and uh, this one didn't go so well. And Shimon
2: well. Perez is his foreign minister by the way. I don't know if he said that yet. Yeah, I think I think we did foreign earlier minister. but but
0: thanks for for bringing that up again. Uh so th- this one didn't go so well. Uh this guy uh who we brought up at the beginning of the the episode, Yigal Amir, uh he had been stalking Rabin since the beginning of the signing of the Oslo Accords in Washington in September of 93. And Amir was in his mid-20s, you know, law student, real extreme views. Uh, he believed that giving up the West Bank was like denying Jews their historical rights. And, and he saw Rabin as a threat to Jews there under din Rodef law that we were talking about that was kicked around by a lot of those religious types, basically saying, like, oh, this guy is, like, persecuting or prosecuting against, against the Jews, so he deserves to die. So uh, here's what went down. Uh, after the rally, uh, Rabin was heading to his car, and just as he was getting in, Amir came up from behind him and shot him twice with a Beretta pistol, and Rabin got hit in his stomach and in his chest. Uh, Amir was quickly tackled by Rabin's bodyguards and cops, but not before he accidentally shot one of the bodyguards, uh, Yoram Rubin, uh, who luckily only uh, got a minor injury. Uh, Amir was arrested right there with the gun, and Rabin was not in great shape. Uh, he was super limp. His bodyguards and the driver, uh, Menachem uh, Demati, they they tried to rush him to the hospital. Uh, the driver was super stressed. He even got a bit lost on the way there, ran some red lights, you know, the the whole deal. It's a, it was a crazy commotion. And Rabin was initially conscious at first, saying he didn't think he was too badly hurt, but then he, he ends up passing out and they finally got him to the hospital about 10 minutes after the shooting. At the hospital also super chaotic scene. Rabin wasn't breathing. He didn't have a pulse. Uh, doctors tried their best, but you know, they even got his pulse back at one point. Um, so he, he was he was back up and um Rabin went into surgery at that point. But there was this brief moment of hope when Rabin's condition seemed stable, but it went downhill super fast. There was a pretty desperate attempt by the surgeons um to basically save his life, but he couldn't be saved and he was uh, pronounced dead an hour and a half later after he was shot. And, uh you know, e- Eitan Haber, he, he then had to go out and announce the fact that you know, Rabin was gone. And he said that, you know, the government of Israel announces the in deep sorrow, the death of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, who was murdered tonight in Tel Aviv. Which, you know, I mean, could have seen that coming, given that they were out there saying death to Rabin, right? But, uh. Interesting fact, they found a bloodstained paper with the lyrics to Shir La Shalom or Song for Peace in Rabin's pocket. And the song is actually about the uh, the need for peace because you can't go you can't bring back the dead. It's a l- little bit of a tragic irony there. Um so I mean in in the aftermath of this in the Israeli settlements, people were debating about, you know, whether or not this this was okay, right? Whether or not this this not Rodef law, you know, the, the snitches get stitches law, um, that that this applied to Rabin and to the Oslo Accords broadly, and some thought that Amir got the go-ahead from a rabbi for the assassination, but that's that part isn't super clear. Amir's dad even said that Amir kept saying Rabin should be killed under this law, and in his trial, Amir said that he did it under that law, Din Rodef, and that it wasn't personal, and it was just so that we can get Rabin out of power. And the Israeli security service Shin Bet, they they had an eye on Amir for for trying to start an air like trying to start an anti-Arab group like separately, but they missed a lot of his comments about wanting to kill Rabin, which which he said to a, a bunch of people. Uh, they ignored a bunch of warning signs too. Uh, anyway, Amir ends up getting life in prison plus some extra time for injuring the bodyguard, which I mean at that point, what does it matter? Uh, and his sentence wasn't reduced, which is. Super unusual in Israel, and he seemed pretty happy about what he did. He even asked for a drink to celebrate it. And the police also arrested uh, Amir's brother uh, Hagai and another and another accomplice by the name of Jor Adani. Hagani got 16 years in jail, and Adani got seven. It turns out that uh, one of the well-known right-wing extremists, Havishai Raviv, was actually an informant for Shin Bet, but you know he was acquitted in court. Uh, for charges related to the assassination, and that's
2: what went down. Well, I mean, all these right-wing groups have informants from from their state police's or their federal police's, but I'm sure that's that that's just a coincidence. But um, this is, in my opinion, this is like kind of the turning point in um in the entire conflict because like i don't think nothing like this could happen today like the current conflict right now i don't know what the death toll is going to be by the time this releases um but right now we're around twenty two thousand or so this wouldn't fly this wouldn't happen i don't think this would happen 30 years ago but um I the whole it's a tragedy. I mean, it's not only a tragedy because I think Yitzhak Rabin really did gave it an honest he 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 did he gave it, it he gave the impossible task of, you know, preserving Israel as a Jewish state with creating a lasting peace. Um you know he gave it an honest shot, and you know there were a lot of Israelis who, a lot of reputations on the line, who were giving this an honest shot, and um, you know he was killed because of it. So, if there's no way out, if there's no political solution, like if a prime minister of Israel was like, okay, we're in, this, the Palestinian conflict is. Um, is, is is um we're past a military solution right now. We need to find a political solution. Like would they just be assassinated? Um, is that is that the consequence of seeking a peace?
1: Well, um, I mean, it sounds
2: like it sounds like
0: it. Especially if if I, and I don't know what the I don't know what the political or religious zeitgeist is right now in Israel, but it's pretty far right wing right now. So I can imagine that they'd still be talking about those laws those um din rotif or whatever laws if someone decided like hey let's uh let's stop <laughs> you know um i feel like they they would they would get the same treatment as rabin did for at least from some groups in israel
2: yeah and now they're i mean now now these uh these groups are are way more organized than they used to be and they actually have real positions of power so it's just we got that guy
0: who's that who's that um who's that guy that wanted to make his uh i forget his name he wanted to make his own paramilitary force in the west bank
2: uh itamar ben gavir and uh smotrich who's the minister of finance um but it's it's um ben gavir is out of the picture right now but smotrich is still in power um but i mean I don't know. It's like every time we do one of these episodes, it's like, yeah, well, what would you do if you were? It's like, I have no idea. It seems like we're beyond the peace. It seems like the Israelis right now are, are just saying, hey, wh- I mean, here's what I can't put my tongue on right now is that, is this more of like a Netanyahu thing? Like, let's do, let's, I need to do this to stay in power. Or is this really like across the board what a lot of, um, Hyatt people and the defense establishment or political establishment feel is the only solution is to just like make Gaza so inhabitable that they have to move into the Sinai. But the thing is, though, is that yeah, it, it's, I I think it could be both. Right. I mean, just like just like how, you know, the, the intersection of the secular
0: Zionists, you know, got together with the right wing religious, you know, components of, of Israel to to push for expand, you know, expansion of, of settlements. I think, I think it could be both, right. Just before this, this, you know, October 7th, like, and even, be, you know, the, Israel was kind of in rocky place, you know, uh, Netanyahu's government was kind of in a rocky place. I mean, how many, how many, there's been five elections in three years or something like that, right? Like Netanyahu definitely wasn't in, you know, in, in, in a strong amount of power and he had to, he had to uh, uh, kowtow to a lot of these right wing zealots to to get the power that he needed to maintain a government. And and even before that, he was in a hell of a lot of trouble, you know, um, for you know, breaking laws and shit, you know. Uh for, for flagrant, flagrant corruption. corruption. Flagrant corruptions, right? So, you know, uh I think and and if you look at his history here, right? Like, I mean, this is nothing new for for him, I mean, he was he was chanting death to the guy. He, he led that fake funeral for the guy that wanted peace, or that at least wanted to give it a shot. And we're not again, we're not saying that 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 Rabin was this like.
2: And the peace wasn't the per the peace wasn't like no perfect peace or anything like that. It wasn't like oh, this is going to be a sovereign nation. It was really just kind of autonomy. But it was, but it was. One hundred percent preferable to anything that's going on right now, and one hundred percent preferable
0: um, to occupation and and genocide. The,
2: the thing, the thing that I, we'll we'll see how this plays out, really, but the end game. And I've said this earlier. I said I don't. The Israelis can't kill their way out of this. If let's just say if they push, I don't know, they're going to push two million people out of Gaza. That still leaves the West Bank, but now these people—if they're in the Sinai—if they're in the Sinai—you have all these guys who are probably Hamas, who are sympathetic to Hamas, and probably Hamas's recruitment is going to be at an all-time high after this. Now they have access to the Red Sea, and you don't control their 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 um their coastline, so anyone who knows anything about the region that that region in the red sea across yemen you know across somalia across all these countries in the horn of africa something that they have a lot of is weapons and it will be way easier to arm a palestinian resistance who was headquartered in the sinai than than it would be to arm one that's in that's even even like egypt struggles to
0: to like have control over the sinai peninsula there's a lot of fucked up things that happens in the sinai peninsula it's like in the south uh, along the red sea it's like a bunch of like resorts and shit and all over the north it's just like fucking black market smuggling weapons like where people go to like hide it's crazy
2: yeah so you're you're saying like oh, let's let's give them the Let's give them the Sinai. Give them a the place
0: where there is no rules and no one can, you know, check them.
2: I feel like that would be the ultimate security risk for them. Because now they'll, and especially if there's, um, you know, wait, ways for them to, I mean, they couldn't secure the border. They couldn't secure the border, you know, this relatively small fence. Um, You know, they're not going to be able to create a border immediately. Hundreds or... Are-
0: Thousand miles of of, you know, Sinai Desert.
2: So we're talking about like, what is it going to be like? Endless military excursions into the Sinai, fighting Hamas guys. It's they can't do the Israelis can't do that. They can't really project outside of their borders, except for airstrikes and stuff like that. But they can't invade. I mean, they don't have the ability to really invade anything that's outside of their occupied territories. They can bomb the shit out of things, but. To get these guys, you have to, you know, go down and actually kill them.
0: Well, I mean, if they're not in in Israel proper, they could just nuke them.
2: That could be an option. <laughs> they can't. They're not going to nuke the Sinai Desert. It's too close to them. That's a last resort type of thing. Um, but that would be real crazy if they did. Um, okay, let's wrap this episode up. because it's getting to almost 12 and the likelihood of saying something dumb, it goes up. I'm sure we've already
0: said plenty of dumb shit at this point. (laughs) So cut our losses, right?
2: (laughs) Okay guys. Thanks again for listening to another episode of bro history. We always appreciate your company. Make sure that you rate and review the podcast. If you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, follow us, subscribe And you can also join our Patreon, get access to our Slack channel. Danny, anything else to add? Nope. All right. Peace, guys.